2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Millar, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Owen Hooley about his book, On the Heels of Ignorance, Psychiatry and the Politics of Not Knowing, published in 2019 by University of Chicago Press. Dr. Owen Hooley is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of New Mexico and Senior Fellow at the UNM Center of Health Policy. He's broadly interested in the study of medical professionals, adapting historical and qualitative research methods to explore research questions related to medical knowledge and power. Some of his topics of interest also include the role of organizations in legitimating certain understandings of health and disease, the local practices by which doctors and patients negotiate meaning, and the way in which social movements and non-traditional knowers participate in the production of medical knowledge. Owen, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: Yeah. So first, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh,
1: Yeah. So um, uh, thank you for the introduction. As uh, you mentioned, I'm an associate professor um, of sociology at the University of New Mexico, where I've been here for seven years. Um, I teach medical sociology, sociology, health and illness, uh, mental health, kind of sociology of madness course uh which is fun um i got my phd from nyu and then did a a two-year postdoc at rutgers uh, and the postdoc was actually focused on uh, mental health it was an interdisciplinary social science postdoc and that's where i started uh, this research um, and then uh, continued on while at unm Um, I'm billed as a a medical sociologist, but I think a more accurate description of what it is I do is uh, as a sociologist of knowledge uh, who studies medicine or specifically medical professionals to explore kind of more theoretical issues uh, related to knowledge, power, authority. Um, I'm really interested in how actors uh, make claims uh, and assert and maintain authorities uh, as arbiters of truth. Um, and I think medicine is a, a good place to explore these issues because, uh, in kind of medical practice, you often get uh, competing, clashing ways of thinking about uh, health and illness, um, and often with uh, life or death consequences. So, this is my second book. My, my first book was based on my dissertation, um, and it looks at uh, the professionalization of medicine in the 19th century through uh, a history of successive cholera epidemics. I should also say uh, I'm a historical sociologist. I think my work uh, straddles a kind of fine line between history and sociology. But but I think, uh, and obviously I'm trained as a sociologist, uh, but oftentimes my work can look a lot like that of a historian. Um, So, yeah, I guess that's a kind of good introduction, I I would say.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure it's really interesting uh, during this time in the world with the coronavirus. Um, I know a lot of really interesting sociological studies will probably come out of this difficult time. Um, but I'll go ahead and start with a couple of questions just generally about your book, especially those for maybe who aren't as familiar with sociology of knowledge um, or the sociology of ignorance. So can you just define ignorance and the sociology of ignorance and tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I when, you know, I should begin with the caveat. Uh, by saying that when we kind of affix a name to like-minded research, uh, sometimes we have a tendency to imply more shape and coherence than there actually is. Um, And certainly this is uh, true with uh, the sociology of ignorance. Um, It's less a kind of coherent ASA subfield uh, and more of a kind of loose confederation uh, of researchers in a variety of places Kind of talking about and thinking about similar uh, similar areas. Um, we could see the kind of uh, unsettled nature or the kind of burgeoning nature of the field by the fact that it's called by very uh, uh, different names. Uh, so you might hear it called ignorance studies. You might hear it called agnotology. Uh, some people call it sociology of non-knowledge. I prefer sociology of ignorance, uh, one, because I'm a sociologist, uh, and we love to name things sociology of X. Uh, but two, I think insofar as we want to, um, want to engage audiences beyond academia, I think it's always best to use the least jargony, uh, name for what it is we do. With that said, I, I I see the sociology of ignorance as being built upon kind of two fundamental ideas or notions, uh. The first uh, speaks to a long neglect of the study of ignorance in the sociology of knowledge. Um, And uh, that neglect is in part, I think, uh, a a reflection of the tendency to think of ignorance as an absence, as a negative, as a kind of empty space, a mere lack of something, that something being knowledge. Um, But sociologists of ignorance uh, argue that ignorance has a presence in its own right, which, while related to knowledge, kind of operates according to uh, distinct dynamics. Um, moreover, I think there, there's an appreciation that ignorance is not deviant or, nor exceptional, but rather omnipresent. So if we want to kind of understand development and knowledge, sociologists of ignorance like myself would argue we have to also understand that which we do not know and how that influences how we act in the world. Um, so the second kind of main idea of the sociology of ignorance is you know, once you start looking for ignorance, you, you come to see it everywhere. Um, and uh, you also come to see that not all ignorance is the same, namely, that there, there are different kinds of ignorance. So, what a lot of the work in this field has revolved around kind of classifying um, different kinds of ignorance. And exploring how those differences might lead to different kinds of practices and actions in the quote unquote real world. Uh, so, you know, people are looking at uh, the differences uh, between, say, ignorance that is unintentional versus ignorance that is willful or intentional. Uh, there's also differences in recognition. Uh, it's, is our ignorance known or is it unknown? Are we aware of our ignorance or are we unaware? of our ignorance. Um, There's also kind of talk about, and interesting research on kind of strategic and cultivated uh, ignorance. So uh, particularly the way in which powerful elites might use ignorance in order to uh, kind of um, shore up their authority and power, that sort of thing. So fundamentally, I think the ultimate goal of the sociology of ignorance is to kind of remedy our collective ignorance of ignorance by adopting ignorance as an object of in its own right. Now that's a mouthful, but essentially uh, I think the benefit or the analytical payoff of this approach is to kind of hone in on ignorance as a thing that exists that can be an object of analysis in its own right. Um, now where my work comes in with psychiatry, I'm, I'm kind of interested in a, a more typical prosaic form of ignorance, uh, ignorance that is unintentional and unwanted. Um, and particularly, I'm interested in how psychiatrists uh, collectively manage this ignorance in order to maintain authority. Now, unfortunately, psychiatry is a good place to study ignorance because um, psychiatry, uh, you know, somewhat distinct from other medical specialties, um, has pretty uh, wide gaps in its knowledge base uh, that we still lack a basic understandings of the mechanisms underlying mental distress and mental disorders. Uh, we have a number of hypotheses and ideas as to what causes this, but at the end of the day, uh, psychiatry uh, remains very much in, in the dark uh, when talking about what causes mental illness, but really what mental illness even is. Is it a uh, kind of genetically predis- uh genetic predisposition? Is it a, uh, 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 function of kind of faulty neurotransmitters? Uh, is it something that comes from kind of interpersonal relationships or social factors? Uh, all of these kind of questions remain vague and unanswered. And so, so my question or what I try to tackle in the book is, if we assume that professions are accorded authority on their basis of the claim to knowing things, of having expert knowledge that other people don't have, how has psychiatry endured despite its kind of fundamental ignorance as to what mental illness it is?
2: Yeah, it sounds like psychiatry is a really great place, a really good case to study ignorance, um, especially like in comparison to other medical specialties. Yeah, so, I
1: should I should say okay. just uh, sorry to interrupt, but I should say that um, you know uh, I talk a lot about psychiatry, but I think ignorance. Is, I mean, I I would assert that ignorance is. A challenge for uh, certainly every medical specialty and certainly every profession. Um, now, I think in uh, psychiat- the, the case of psychiatry, might be kind of an outlier or a kind of ext- extreme variation of this. But I think all uh, professions struggle with how to collectively manage their ignorance in order to assert authority.
2: Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So tell us a little bit about your methods that you use to conduct the study before we jump into content.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, I'm a historical sociologist, uh, and so much of my research tends to be archival in nature. Uh, in this book, uh, I approach the archive in the kind of following way. So um, the the book kind of spans roughly 1840 to the present. Um and in order to kind of track uh, the evolution of ignorance, or I should say, the persistence of ignorance over that time, um, I uh, the kind of backbone of the analysis is a kind of content analysis of the Amer- what is now called the American Journal of Psychiatry, which uh, kind of uh, conveniently for me spans that entire period. Um, this is the official. Journal of the American Psychiatric Association, or what's now called the American Psychiatric Association. And so I was kind of able to track these developments from 1840 to the present through that. And that kind of provides what I like to think of as the the spine or the kind of backbone uh, that kind of runs through the entire analysis. Uh, But certainly that's not all I read. Uh, so from, I've also, from, from, those sources I'd also identified kind of key other primary sources, uh, things like, um, you know, uh, reports from uh, asylums, uh, certainly important monographs uh, that are being written, um, those kinds of, of documents uh, that are also kind of tied into the analysis. Um, I should also mention that the, the last empirical chapter on the DSM uh, also includes information from 30 interviews I conducted with psychiatrists who were involved in the production of DSM-5. Um, that's actually where I started this project. This, that was um, uh, my main focus during my postdoc period. Uh, and, um, and so uh, kind of through talking to elites, kind of leaders of the profession who are involved in uh, the DSM-5 uh, really help flesh out uh, my chapter on the kind of contemporary period. Um, I should also mention that uh, as as a kind of historical sociologist, uh, I lean heavily on um, secondary historical accounts of psychiatry. Uh, psychiatry, uh, fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, when you're trying to say something new, uh, is a, uh, a well-studied uh, profession historically. Um, and so I lean on this research for these, uh, you know, the research of many historians uh, for insight, kind of context to kind of what I'm seeing or what I was seeing in my own research and kind of triangulation of certain ideas. Uh, so, uh, you know, historians like Jerry Grove, Edward Shorter, Charles Rosenberg, uh, kind of on and on. Um, I, I, I really uh, benefited from engaging in, in those works. I kind of you know. With that said, I, I do. You know, any kind of uh, method has its limitation, uh, and I kind of want to be specific about the particular li- limitations of of my uh, documents, uh, namely that um, this kind of research only really allows me to say things about what uh, about elite psychiatrists, uh kind of leaders of the profession who are setting the agenda. Uh, one historian. Richard Knoll calls this uh, uh, aspirational psychiatry. So these are the individuals who kind of lay out the particular vision of psychiatry and who are kind of talking about these larger issues, who are the leaders of the profession, who are steering the course, who are kind of justifying publicly publicly what psychiatry has to offer. Um, So that means, what that means is that's perfectly fine for the kind of what I'm engaging for in in terms of theoretically in in my book. Uh, But it means that um, I don't have a whole lot in here about kind of what psychiatry looks like on the ground. Um, And I think that's an important distinction because I think in psychiatry in particular, there's often a divide between what elites, leaders of the profession argue that psychiatry is and what it actually looks like in practice. Um, And, uh, you know, currently I've kind of moved Towards my next project, move towards the practice side of things, but you know we can we can talk about that later. But I wanted to kind of point out that this is a story in this book about elite leaders in the profession who are articulating different visions of psychiatry in order to kind of stave off potential negative ramifications for uh, of their of their own ignorance.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, especially given your methods. Um, I imagine that most of the, the research or the secondary data um, that you looked at, yeah, it, it did look at the, the main leaders in the field. Um, so what is the role of ignorance in maintaining public trust and how has psychiatry managed the risk of losing its authority?
1: Yeah, to to kind of answer your question, if I I kind of understand what you're driving at, I'd like to talk a bit about the relationship between ignorance and professional authority because I think it's complicated. So on one hand, professional authority or kind of claims to expert knowledge requires the cultivation of a certain kind of ignorance, particularly ignorance of outsiders, right? Uh, You want to, professions... uh, want to and need to kind of maintain some mystery as to what it is their expert knowledge uh, uh, does and can do. Because if everything was transparent, if everything was widely available, if you just kind of laid out all your expertise to the public, you'd have little warrant in justifying certain professional privileges. So with professions, there's always a a bit of obfuscation involved, a bit of um, kind of uh, mystification of of keeping outsiders in the dark as to what uh, the special things that only they know, that only they can know. On the other hand, uh, because as I mentioned, professional authority is predicated on making some sort of claims to expertise, ignorance can present a potential threat to professions. If a profession's ignorance becomes too evident, the legitimacy of the whole enterprise can be questioned. and, And this is something Um, I argue we see continuously throughout the history of psychiatry, these kind of moments of crises when they're they're, the kind of underlying ignorance or gaps in their knowledge base become too evident. And then professional leaders have to kind of scramble to figure out what to do. Um, This, I'd argue, is the primary thing actually driving the history of uh, psychiatry. Um, so so with professions there's kind of you want to strike a kind of uh, ignorance plays a um, kind of a complicated role on one hand it pr- can provide the uh, or at least help solidify one's authority and on the other hand it could potentially undermine that authority now I should note here that uh, when I began this project I didn't uh, intend <laughs> to write a history of psychiatric <laughs> ignorance um, Rather, my goal is much broader, uh, was to kind of figure out this kind of curious trajectory or history of psychiatry, uh, namely the kind of dramatic transformations that psychiatry has undergone, not just once or twice, but multiple times. Um, and so, but this focus on ignorance really came from empirical observations of what I was seeing in the archive. Um, I, I came to notice something uh, interesting and, and in part interesting in comparison to my first book on kind of uh, mainstream medicine uh, is that psychiatrists write and talk a lot about their own ignorance. Uh, and I think this, uh, this is uh, uh, unusual, um, not to say that other professions or other experts don't acknowledge their ignorance, but just the sheer amount of discourse, acknowledging this ignorance, struggling over this ignorance, kind of grappling with this ignorance, uh, really kind of popped out to me. Um, And so I started to kind of begin to kind of think through, uh, um, you know, what is is going on here? Um, And at this moment is when I really started kind of first engaging with the sociology of ignorance literature. Um, And eventually I kind of came to kind of the conclusion that uh, ignorance is the kind of key to unlock the curious history of psychiatry that I kind of uh, began my project with. So if we're talking about, okay, we've been talking about ignorance. So what does it look like for psychiatry and kind of what's the story here? Um, and and I would say, so as I mentioned, right, you know, psychiatry is beginning, um, is starting out with a severe deficit in its understanding of its purported object of expertise. You know What is mental illness? What causes mental illness? And so psychiatric reformers have kind of faced this constant regular challenge and that is convincing people that this ignorance about mental illness is unknown but knowable rather than unknown and unknowable. Now, this is kind of a, a mouthful but it's an important distinction, right? So in other words, Psychiatrists need to convince people that their ignorance of mental illness is a temporary state that can be resolved, rather than a permanent state that might reflect uh, the kind of essence of the thing they're trying to know. Right? The idea here would be that the mind is inherently mysterious and perhaps beyond uh, our grasp. Right? So ignorance. So reformers are trying to convince people that. Yes, while we have this kind of ignorance, it is eventually knowable rather than unknowable. Because if it's unknowable, right, why have psychiatry? So the task of reformers have had to adopt through kind of successive iterations of psychiatry is to frame mental illness as knowable in the future. Right? So it's kind of creating and fostering expectations and promises that, yes, while we are struggling with this today, if we institute different ways of thinking about mental illness, different uh, methodologies, different approaches to studying it, we will eventually resolve this. Now, the upshot of this, if you look over the course of the history of psychiatry, is a series of what I call uh, successive reinventions, right? Um, And so how does a reinvention work? A a reinvention is a, a kind of process by which Psychiatric reformers have transformed the fundamental purpose, character of the profession so much so that it appears to be something new altogether. Um, These are not just kind of mere tweaks, mere reforms. These are wholesale reinventions as as to what psychiatry is, what the identity of a psychiatry is, what it is that psychiatrists do how they think about mental illness, what theories they're using to think about it, and even fundamentally what mental illness is, right? Um, And so what you see is kind of what will happen in psychiatry is that, you know, you'll have a kind of, you'll institute a reform with promising to resolve ignorance. There will be a period of kind of initial hype that, okay, now we finally figured it out, Um, And then gradually confidence will erode until there's a kind of what I call a crisis of ignorance, these moments when psychiatry's lack of knowledge becomes evident. And then you'll get new reformers saying, okay, wait a second, we need to kind of entirely reinvent the wheel again. And so over time, what you see is this kind of cycle of crisis, reinvention, crisis, reinvention, crisis, reinvention, To the extent that over kind of 150 years, a bit longer or so, psychiatrists burned through five different reinventions. So about, you know, every 30 to 40 years, we're seeing this.
2: Yeah, I know. When I read the book, I was like, this seems just like a cyclical process uh, of constant reinvention. Um, And so broadly, though, um, you don't have to go into details about the specific reinventions, but broadly um, how has psychiatry's identity changed over the last roughly 150 a little bit more years
1: yeah so I, it's gone through what I would identify as five successive reinventions now there's one that's a um, kind of brief and short-lived that I'll talk about um, and I and I won't go into this details but I can kind of list them um, so the psychiatry emerges in in the US and I, and I should say, this is an, you know, the story I'm telling in this book is an American story. I think there's certainly overlaps with other uh, countries, particularly England and France, but 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 the dynamics are a bit different there. So in the U.S., uh, psychiatrists, psychiatry is founded uh, as a profession of um, asylum super, superintendents. So psychiatry at this period is all about creating healthful, milieus in asylums. Right? So that's the kind of emergence, and that's where psychiatry uh, is founded, and um, and uh, kind of uh, uh, that's where its origins lie. Uh, and um, we can kind of kind of talk about these in more detail as as you might want. Uh, but um, around so that that period lasts from roughly 1840 to about 1890. Um, Eventually, there's this crisis around the asylums, namely that they weren't living up to the hype uh, and uh, of of, uh, their ability to cure mental illness. And psychiatry then makes a kind of pivot to uh, this kind of period that I deem as eclectic uh, called psychobiology. Um, And here uh, there is, this is probably the the least coherent of the various reinventions. the idea was that, uh, you know, uh, mental illness is uh, protein in nature. It's very complicated. And so we need to adopt a, a variety of ways of, of thinking about and understanding it. Um, some close, some ways closely tied to uh, the emergence of modern medicine, uh, things like eugenics, those kinds of things. This kind of complicated eclectic period. That lasts roughly from about uh, 1900 to um, to right around World War II. Subsequent to World War II is, uh, and this is kind of widely documented in the historical research and and widely studied, probably overstudied, frankly, uh, the kind of Freudian psychoanalytic period of psychiatry. Uh, And here, uh, the idea is we're going to move away from notions of mental illness rooted in the brain to mental illness rooted in the mind. Right, We're talking about looking at kind of subconscious uh, repressed sources of psychological tension leading to neurosis, that kind of thing. That lasts uh, roughly between World War II and say 1970s. Um, Before the reinvention, which is the one that's probably uh, the the most short-lived, and, and, and some might argue not, is not a kind of complete reinvention, but I will push back on that, um, is this notion of community psychiatry, uh, which is really, uh, in many ways, the most sociological or social science-infused approach to mental illness, uh, the idea that we need to attend to the larger social environment, that we need to treat uh, those with mental illness in the community, and as best as possible, integrate them into the community. That is a very brief uh, reinvention. We might kind of overlaps with uh, psychiatry, at least the kind of tail, I mean, psychoanalysis, at least the tail end of that. Uh, And that, so that would be dated kind of 1960s and 1970s. And then we get to uh, the present moment, uh, which I think we could talk about more. um, But uh, what? Uh, Other folks have called, particularly sociologist Alan Horowitz, uh, diagnostic psychiatry. And this is psychiatry, what we know today, uh, where there's an emphasis on diagnoses, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, uh, kind of defines the universe of how we think about and categorize mental illness. Uh, This is the psychiatry of, you know, psychopharmacology and antidepressants. With the kind of vague notion that what causes mental illness are faulty neurotransmitters or kind of chemical imbalances in the brain, um, and that would kind of take us up to the present. Now, I will say, um, I do think the uh, authority of the diagnostic psychiatry, this last reinvention, I do think it's kind of facing the uh, I, uh, the the sheen has come off of it in many ways. I do think it's facing a potential crisis. Uh, I am reticent to predict the history of psychiatry, uh, but I do think we're kind of in a moment, perhaps, of if we're looking at this cycle where we're starting to kind of uh, arc into that those kind of uh, crisis period again, or psychiatry is arcing into that crisis period again. Uh, but we could talk more about that if want.
2: Yeah. So when you say that, are you talking about the the neo invention, reinvention as the most recent reinvention? Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. So neo Linian, which is a, I mean, if I'm going to uh, identify a school of thought, I'd probably choose an easier, a better name. Um, but uh, so neo uh, uh are the kind of the this this group of psychiatric reformers who. Particularly in the late 1970s, early 1980s, very successfully reoriented psychiatry away from the more Freudian psychoanalytic period, where we're kind of where where the emphasis is talk therapy and kind of diving deep down into an individual's uh, um, neuroses and subconscious, uh, to what we have today. Now, Kraepelin, uh Emil Emil Creplin. I'm pretty sure it's Emil. Um, Uh, was a contemporary of Freud, uh, so kind of writing at the kind of early 1900s. And he was a German psychiatrist who uh, really was focused on um, creating classification schemes uh, for uh, uh, mental illness um, with the idea that if you classify mental illness uh, if you, once you kind of develop diagnostic classifications, that will help uh, achieve a kind of more biomedical scientific understanding
2: of mental illness.
1: Uh, now, for much of the history in American psychiatry, uh, Kraepelin uh, was kind of a, I wouldn't go so far to say a marginal figure, but was certainly marginalized under the psychoanalytic paradigm. Uh, psychoanalysts don't really care all that much about diagnoses their emphasis is on the particular experience of the patient in front of them. So it doesn't really, never really mattered all that much to them what you call the particular neurosis. Um, now, in the 1970s, these neocraplinians, so the new Kraplinians, um, sought to reform psychiatry uh, to make it more in line with uh, mainstream biomedical science. And the way they sought to do this was by shoring up the classification system of, of psychiatry. Now, this is, it's kind of a a, a a weird story, or maybe not weird, but they they're certainly their the way in which they achieved this significant kind of revolution in psychiatry. Uh, it was um, uh, unexpected. Um, so really what they did is they achieved this through revising the DSM. Now, the DSM was long seen as a kind of marginal document in psychiatry. DSM-1, I think, is published in 1950, 52, I think. Uh, DSM-2, 1968. But these were kind of bureaucratic documents uh, that most people didn't really pay attention to, um, well, what happens is in the kind of lead up to revising this document of dsm 3 the neocraplinians led by uh, Robert Spitzer uh, took over the process of revising the DSM and used that to fundamentally redefine what mental illness was. And the way in which they did this is they kind of said, all right, we're going to jettison, get rid of all this kind of stale psychoanalytic babble. Um, They were pretty hostile to psychoanalysis uh, about the hostile. Um, And what we're going to do is we are going to create diagnostic categories that are reliable, that could then form the foundation uh, for biomedical research, right? If you want to conduct a randomized controlled trial on, say, some sort of medication, right, you need a specific diagnostic target. You need to create coherent samples of, people with a particular condition in order to demonstrate whether or not that medication might work. And the way in which they did this is create diagnostic categories that were essentially lists of symptoms uh, with particular criteria, um, with the idea that any psychiatrist could take this criteria, take this list of symptoms, apply it to the case in front of them, and use that to uh, more reliably diagnose diagnose um, their patients. Moreover, researchers could use these diagnostic categories to build that kind of requisite research base to finally make psychiatry a legitimate medical science, to finally kind of build that biomedical infrastructure, to finally resolve the ignorance of psychiatry and kind of identify the causes of mental illness. So, even though this was a kind of marginalized document for most of its history, DSM-III is anything but. Um, and it becomes this kind of watershed moment in which psychiatry, uh, at least in terms of the kind of neocrapelinian reformers, becomes a legitimate biomedical science and begins to build that kind of infrastructure for, uh, for understanding mental illness through that kind of perspective.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So this sounds like it's one of the ways perhaps that psychiatry does manage like this concept or this problem of ignorance. Are there other major strategies that psychiatry is used to manage ignorance that you talk about?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think so. I mean, the general uh, the general strategy is this kind of cycle of reinvention. Right. And and in particular, kind of thinking about I'm interested in thinking about the what reinvention does in terms of ignorance. So what reinvention does is it kind of reframes ignorance and it reframes it along a temporal dimension. So let's say I'm a reformer. Let's say, hypothetically, in this case, I'm a neo-Crapelinian reformer. And I'm faced with a, a, a crisis, really a professional crisis in psychiatry. Well, what I'm doing by articulating this new version is, in a sense, relegating ignorance to the past. Putting the blame of ignorance on kind of my forebears, right? So, ignorance in this case is a problem of psychoanal- psychoanalytic psychiatrists had it wrong. They thought about mental illness wrong. They went about discovering or understanding it wrong. They're the reason why we're in this state. So, so it relegates ignorance to the past, and then in it looking forward to the future, it anticipates or projects. The overcoming of that ignorance. So let's adopt these reforms, let's revise the DSM, let's think about mental illness in a new way, because that will lead us down this kind of scientific road we, where we will, we will have valid understandings. So I call this, I call this kind of under the generic title time warp, uh, time work, right? Because uh, reformers are kind of framing both the past and the future. Um, in order to defer judgment uh, on um, on ignorance and kind of keep the profession moving, but then in the, the conclusion, I, I begin to kind of uh, sort through um, various kind of tactics and strategies by which uh, that I see in I s- see in this history of psychiatry uh, that might be um, applicable to other cases, and you know I list. Uh, kind of uh, both kind of cultural and organizational tactics uh, involved. There's a list, I think, of about 15. I won't (laughs) go over all of those. Um, But to kind of point to some of the more, I think, common ones in this, if we're talking about collective management of ignorance, I think the most common one is denial, Uh, you know, just denying the existence of ignorance. Um, I think this one has uh, this particular tactic, although, Occasionally used in psychiatry um, hasn't uh, been all that feasible given the kind of um, the uh, the uh, public nature or the kind of transparency of the uncertainty in psychiatric knowledge. Um, Other kind of strategies is to approach what I call appropriation. Uh, That's uh, where reformers kind of deflect attention away from their own ignorance by adopting and adapting ideas from outsiders who are accepted as legitimate knowers. Um, This happens most typically uh, in psychiatry in various appeals to mainstream medicine, which um, I think the professionalization story of kind of mainstream medicine is far more successful uh, than psychiatry. And so oftentimes psychiatry will try to appropriate those kinds of outside ideas Um, We have uh, um, a tendency to deflect blame onto the object. Uh, So what what this means is, you know, psychiatrists uh, will um, not explain away their ignorance, but will um, uh, account for it by saying, look, we are tasked with understanding and treating something that is inherently difficult and complicated. Right. So it, so in, in other words, the ignorance isn't our fault. It's more of a product of the difficult task in which we've been assigned. Um, and uh, now this one's, I think, a bit, um, uh, this one, it may require some balancing or counterbalancing, I should say, because if you are too successful in blaming the object, then eventually people will say, well, if it's unknowable, then we'll just kind of throw our hands up, um, those kinds of things. Uh, naming the object. I think uh, this is if we're talking about the Neocrypillinian moment. Um, I think there is power in um, affixing a label to something uh, and classifying something. Classification suggests understanding, success suggests comprehension. So with the DSM, right, if you go to the DSM and you pick it up, it looks like a very kind of dry, boring, scientific document. What you don't see in that document is all the kind of background uncertainty negotiations that went into the construction of those categories, right? You don't see that. What you see is something that looks like, oh, this is a scientific compendium of the universe of mental disorders, right? And so that, in in a sense, obscures some of the uncertainty underlying those things. Um, I also should say if we're talking about kind of more organizational strategies uh, one of the things we saw, uh, I see in the, the history of psychiatry is what I term shifting arenas. Um, th- and But by this, I mean, if your ignorance becomes too evident in a particular arena among, with a particular audience, what you can do is kind of shift arenas, go to another place with a new audience who might not be as attuned or familiar with your ignorance. So psychiatry for much of its history uh, was uh, supported by and funded by state legislatures. Um, and kind of when they exhaust the uh, credulity of state legislatures, uh, psychiatric performers then pivot more to the federal government as a source of funding and insight. Uh, an audience that might not be as aware of all of its failings. So those are a few. I kind of lay them out in the, uh, in the conclusion. Um, I should stress that this is by no means an exhausted, an exhaustive list of the tactics that people can use, uh, but um, I kind of put these out there as a, an attempt for you know, subsequent researchers to maybe take them up and explore them in, in other uh, realms and, and uh, arenas. Sure,
2: sure, yeah. I do wanna jump back to one of my favorite chapters of the book, it's called, It Takes a Community to Raise a Profession. So can you just talk a little bit about community psychiatry and how that developed?
1: Yes. I think, personally, community psychiatry is, um, at least when we're talking about uh, where we are today, uh, one of the more tragic stories uh, mm-hmm. of, of a psychiatry. So certainly the history of psychiatry is rife with tragedy and, and uh, really dark uh, events. Um, but this one, I think we're still living through Uh, the ramifications of the failure of this particular reinvention. So community psychiatry uh, emerges uh, uh, really around the the 1960s, uh, around the 1960s, I should say, Um, and then is kind of quickly jettisoned uh, by the late 1970s. And community uh, psychiatry really arose in reaction to and response to the uh, crisis in the mental state mental hospital system uh, that uh, emerged or didn't emerge, but really came to light in uh, the mid 20th century. Here I'm talking about your kind of uh, stereotypical vision of the kind of snake pit mental hospital, your kind of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, these, these, uh, these uh, institutions that um, in which there's really little pretense to care and treatment and really have become kind of warehouses uh, um, and custodial institutions that are housing uh, uh, the mentally ill or the individuals with mental illness. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a kind of interesting story about how this comes to light, uh, how these, uh, the kind of situations in these institutions come to light, um, in, uh during World War II, a lot of conscientious objectors uh, were, were had to kind of fulfill their military service in some sort of other way, uh, rather than serving in, uh, in the kind of armed forces. And so uh, many of them found their way into mental into institutions and encountered really horrific conditions. Uh, and uh, post-World War II, you get a lot of exposés of the mental hospitals. Uh, that kind of compare them in, in in legitimate ways to concentration camps, really kind of dire situations. Um, at the same time, psychiatrists themselves are all not all that keen on mental hospitals uh, because of what I mentioned. They're less uh, centers of treatment and more centers of kind of uh, custodial holding the mentally ill. So everyone decides kind of collectively, that uh, institutionalization is bad, that uh, look at these horrific conditions, we need to kind of fundamentally uh, rethink our approach to individuals with severe, particularly severe and chronic mental illness. And so community psychiatry comes as the solution to this. Now, community psychiatry is built on the notion that those with mental illness, uh, those with mental illness would be best served by being treated in the community. Now, we don't want to lock them away. We don't want to kind of banish them to mental hospitals, but rather we want to figure out ways in which we can treat them so that they can flourish and be integrated in the community. Um, and part of this uh, involves uh, kind of uh, an intellectual program or understanding, right, uh, that involves appreciating the ways in which social environments contribute to or may help with uh, mental dis- uh, distress. Um, and then part of it primarily was uh, an organizational institutional uh, a reinvention, namely, as we know today, deinstitutionalization. Deinstitutionalization has kind of two main goals. One is we want to deinstitutionalize people. We want to shutter the mental hospitals we want to kind of release individuals who have been, uh, who are in there now. Um, And the second part of it was to build a robust kind of community infrastructure to uh, allow these individuals or enable these individuals to live in the community. Unfortunately, deinstitutionalization was very successful in doing the former, that is shutting down the previous infrastructure of mental hospitals, and very bad at doing the latter, right? Building this community infrastructure. Um, So so what you have here is uh, this kind of, when I allude to this being a tragic story is, I actually think community psychiatry was built on kind of noble intentions, but there wasn't the appropriate follow through. And so what we essentially have done is release, we were, Kind of released uh, or eliminated long-term inpatient care for psychi- uh, for those with mental illness, and now have uh, essentially um, left those individuals uh, to fend for themselves. Now there, there is there are community-based mental health providers, um, but that system is under resourced, fragmented, and overtaxed, um, and so the kind of the upshot of what, what's happened as a result of deinstitutionalization is um, that uh, particularly those with severe and chronic mental illness is kind of rampant homelessness mm-hmm. and increasing involvement in the criminal justice system, which in many ways has become, uh, you know, de facto uh, the first line response to chronic and severe mental illness.
2: Um, yeah.
1: So, when, so I, And that's where we are, I think, today particularly when you're talking about chronic and severe mental illness. And I think that's the heart of the tragedy. Um, Not to suggest that the mental hospitals were good or positive. Um, Not all of them were snake pits, but certainly there were horrific abuses that that needed to be uh, addressed. But in my opinion, we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater um, and uh, and have created uh, essentially um, a situation in which Uh, you know, those with chronic and severe mental illness, um, unless they have particular kinds of resources, uh, are um, kind of uh, slotted into a pretty marginalized existence uh, in our current society.
2: Yeah, yeah. So thinking about your research broadly, um, even before this book, and just your identity as a uh, a sociologist of mental health and a medical sociologist and using historic comparative methods. Um, was there anything that surprised you about this research process or your findings?
1: Uh, yes. I mean, hopefully any, any book, <laughs> any large projects, really any project uh, leads to some sort of surprise other, otherwise kind of why, why do it, <laughs> frankly. Uh, but uh, so I think I should go. So the kind of main surprise I think I mentioned already, and I won't talk about it at length, was this kind of recognition about how, this kind of a p- empirical observation about the extent to which psychiatrists talk about ignorance, um, which uh, I, I find actually kind of heartening. Um, you know, I think uh, one would suspect that the tendency would be just to deny and suppress ignorance, but I think, um, I think uh, psychiatry, in a sense, despite my kind of constant criticism of psychiatry as a profession, I think we should at least applaud them for recognizing their ignorance. Um, but beyond that, uh, there were kind of two things. I don't know if, if calling them surprises or, or yeah, well, we, we can call them surprises. Um, one uh, was um, the, the and I don't want to overstate this, but the sympathy, if, if you will, that I've come to feel towards psychiatry Um, And I think this emerges most in the conclusion where I kind of take a step back, uh, because, um, you know, uh, the the, the book is, is, you know, if you trace the history of psychiatry, it's hard not to be critical. And certainly I am. And I don't want to downplay those criticisms. Um, But what I also came to appreciate is uh, the difficulty of the task that has been assigned psychiatry. and the ways in which uh, larger, more collectively, you know, we, we all share in this ignorance towards mental illness, um, but many of us would rather not deal with it. Uh, and so we've kind of foisted that responsibility on psychiatry. Now, psychiatry is willingly taking it, but I do think I developed a more of appreciation of, you know, what a tough nut to crack, mental illness is to crack. Um, and so I, I, I find myself having more sympathy to psychiatry as a profession uh, than I probably went in with. Uh, I think I went in with, you know, having read Foucault and, you know, these uh, labeling theory and social control theorists. I think they're, that they're, they're saying legitimate things, but I think there's uh, there's more nuance to this scenario. The other surprise, uh, and I don't think this was a surprise, but I don't think I anticipated uh, the intensity of it. Um, was has to do more with the kind of writing and reception of the book and that, you know, the history of psychiatry is such a contentious polemical field um, that it's really hard to position yourself in such a way as to convey nuance. Um, and, um, you know, I have, you know, in the, you know, the book has only been out for a few months, but um I, um, in the kind of feedback I've received, uh, it always is kind of jarring how, um, often how either people will accuse me of, um, being this kind of radical, uh, you know, critic of psychiatry, uh, almost anti-psychiatry, or they'll say I'm too sympathetic, <laughs> uh, to psychiatry. And so, uh, in a sense, the, those kind of that kind of conflicting feedback uh, kind of validates that I, you know, in part, kind of figured out a way to kind of steer through these two poles. Um, but it's just really hard to write about uh, psychiatry in a way that leave that isn't either overly celebratory or isn't I um, on the other hand overly critical and damning um, and. You know, so the the kind of intensity of the polemics and the ways in which my work gets read through that lens is something I I think I always anticipated, but nevertheless can be jarring when I experience it.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Um, It's hard to like walk that line between critical and sympathy, but it sounds like you you did it right. Um, But we've taken up a lot of your time and I want to ask the final question for you, which is... What are you working on now or next?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, it, it actually uh, is a kind of evolution of this project, but maybe not a, a direct evolution. So um, as I mentioned before, kind of early on in our talk, um, uh, that there's this, that particularly in psychiatry, I imagine this is true in other professions, other medical specialties as well. But particularly in psychiatry, there's this divide between these elites aspirational psychiatry I've been I did I researched in this book and the kind of on the ground psychiatry so this book uh I've ra- I wrapped up my end of this book um at the same time I got tenure um and so uh tenure is uh, is a kind of for, for those of us kind of fortunate to make it through that process uh is is it an interesting experience and I you know I think it involves more reflection and uh, about who one is as a scholar than I anticipated. Um, And uh, I kind of took this moment, having wrapped up this project and having got tenure um, and the the luxuries afforded by that to say, oh, I want to try something a little bit different with this third project. I've done a lot of archival, both my books have been these kind of archival, longish histories of professions. I want to do something different. And so what, I've, what I'm doing now, although it's been on hold, of course, given the coronavirus and, and all of that stuff, um, is what I've been doing for the past uh, nine months is um, studying uh, community mental health workers um, and really trying to figure out how individuals work and navigate this kind of fractured system of community care and the challenges therein. Um, so, and then because, and so as part of this, because uh, as I mentioned that, um, you know, law enforcement has become first line responders. So what I'm doing is I'm observing and interviewing um, individuals who work in kind of community mental health organizations uh, that serve chronic, and se- individuals with chronic and severe mental illness, while simultaneously, uh, observing and interviewing um, law enforcement, uh, who are often the first-line responders to behavioral health crises. Um, now, this is quite a departure for me. I kind of jokingly refer to it as my second dissertation because oftentimes I feel like I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Um, but this involves, uh, so I'm, this involves, um, you know, the interviews I've conducted before, but the ethnographic observation is a, a, a entirely Uh, new thing uh, for me, uh, which I find uh, both um, reinvigorating and and fascinating, but also incredibly challenging and and, uh, nerve wracking, to be frank. Um, But yeah, so that's what I'm doing. I kind of wanted to get away from talking about, you know, elites in the profession and say, okay, well, what does this actually look like on the ground? Um, And uh, yeah, we'll see. I'm still very much in the throes of it, but we'll see how it, it, uh, it turns out.
2: Yeah, well, that sounds like an exciting project and a great project. So I'm excited to see what comes out of it. But where can listeners find you online to learn more about your work and your book?
1: Uh, yeah, the best place would be to uh, find me on my uh, my personal website, which you can either link uh, to through uh, the UNM Sociology department my profile there but my personal website is um Hooley, all one word so o w e n h o o l e y.com um and that has kind of links to my books uh, links to articles um, i've even kind of posted some syllabi folks are kind of interested in kind of you know how i can uh, you know take this material and apply it to say undergraduate audiences Um, uh, that that information is there. That's probably the best site.
2: Awesome. Yeah. Well, great. Again, this has been an interview with Dr. Owen Hooley, author of On the Heels of Ignorance, Psychiatry and the Politics of Not Knowing. Owen, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. And I really enjoyed chatting with you.
1: Thank you. I, I had a great time. Appreciate it.